Collectors Club. I don't know. We are one of the podcasts and sites off Now Playing Network. Here at the Directors Club, at each episode, we take a look at a director or director's body of work. We look at their creative breakthroughs, their classics, and hidden gems that can be found on their or multiple theirs filmography. You can never tell what themes and connections can show up when you look at a director or director's body of work. Come join us on the film Journey or Journeys. <laughs> Howdy, folks. I'm Al. And I'm Brad. And Al, it appears that we are putting the S in Director's Club today. Yes, it's about time that we finally gave that uh, consonant its due. <laughs> now, why are we being so plural or pluralistic today? It's because we're trying something a little different on this episode. We are going to be taking a look at a work of two directors, but directors who have several things in common that we think is going to be interesting to look at the similarities. One of which is that they are related to each other. We're taking a look at filmmakers Martin and John Michael McDonough. And uh, unlike the Cohen brothers who team up and their films are joint projects, uh, we're going to be talking about each of these brothers' films separately. Which we kind of have to, since they have not quite done the collaboration between the entity known as the Cohen brothers. Yet, I think we're going to find that there's some thematic similarities, maybe even some casting similarities between them. Very true. We'll not only take a look at how each individual person's movies show their creative development, but also how interesting ways about how the creative efforts of each brother kind of can reflect and inform on the work of the other brother. And we'll start with John Michael in his film The Second Death in the year 2000. It's his directorial debut of an 11-minute short about a haunted man with heart palpitations who learns of the results of his previous actions while drinking at the local pub. Now, probably before we get too into this or really any of these films, uh, one thing they have in common is both directors are very much about uh, very punchy endings that make you uh, reconsider what's come before. And so we're going to do a spoiler warning, not just on this, but pretty much on all the movies, because there's too much interesting uh, material at the end not to talk about it. But if you haven't seen these films, consider yourself warned. That's a really great point, Brad, because so much of interest in these films just come across from the journey when you when you watch it, the, your the way your impressions are pulled this way and that, and the way your attitudes change as you watch them, is very much a part of these films' charms. And with uh, this 
short, one of the cool aspects is how you're not really aware till the end that it's a ghost story, that it's very much in the vein of the old Tales from the Crypt comics and uh, TV show. Because it's not, because it's also a morality play. This uh, fellow played by uh, Liam Liam Cunningham, who's really good with a, a very small amount of screen time in in setting up his character, who you know right away is upset due to uh, his health, but also he seems to feel a great deal of guilt. Now, guilt is one of those themes that are going to keep coming up throughout this uh, discussion. Mm -hmm. And what we find out is that he, in fact, had uh, raped a young girl and is receiving visitations from the ghost of this girl as she had it's it's she he finds out she had just committed suicide and with his bad ticker that can only mean trouble but until you get to that point i completely agree with you that he does a really nice performance mostly in a very contained way um it's so much of this is a kind of jarmushian jim jarmushian exploration of this pub as this collection of strange characters who have been persisting in their interactions in this pub for what appears to be a great long time, uh, have a very comfortable familiarity with this main character, but all these things are troubling him in a very nicely presented subtle way. And if some of these pub patrons seem a little bit familiar, you may be a fan of the show Game of Thrones, because three of the cast members of this short went on to be in Game of Thrones. (laughs) (laughs) One thing that I really like on this short is definitely has a great sense of visual perspective of the main character and all these other denizens of the place because they all have their own particular rituals and they all have this kind of accommodation to how things are in a way that sort of appreciates the level of human frailties, let's say. Like there's a uh, someone has a, a decent supply of cocaine and mm-hmm. when that gets used and who partakes in something like that is really fun. Like there's a, it's a, there's a single charming moment where a police officer comes in on two of them using cocaine and he says, Oh, just get the hell out of the bathroom. Come on, <laughs> get out, get out. And he just rubs his thumb where they were snorting. It's like ah, rubs against his teeth. Ah, it's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Not to mention our two uh, chess players who could have made their own movie with their banter back and forth. There's such an ease with dialogue here. There's a great naturalism that uh, Mc- McDonough is establishing, and that makes the uh, supernatural elements, which he introduces subtly really all the more effective yes i i feel the the actual spiritual presence is put down nicely down the middle as like could it actually be a presence or also just a manifestation of this guy's guilt good point yeah well there doesn't it doesn't matter of like the baba duke or something where something's attacking per se it just she appears no but there's an accusation 
And like you say, it could be an accusation from, you know, within his own conscience. But there's a a shot where she just looks uh, at the camera uh, in in an accusatory way towards us that's really effective. That's That's very true. And it leads to a very nicely done... Uh, ending tilt too, and the mm-hmm. way the, the angle goes Dutch for exactly the right reason. Yeah, so I was really impressed by this debut. Uh, John Michael McDonough, as we'll discuss uh, as we go on, I think has some some mixed results, but is uh, but this might be my favorite of his works. <laughs> and this was a work that came in quite a bit earlier than his younger brother Martin. Though Martin was uh, pursuing a career as making plays, he retained some renown for several um, uh, highly regarded plays, such as uh, A Behanding in Spokane, uh, a serial killer one, which was a fascinating core premise called The Pillow Man, and then a series of plays called the Aran Islands Trilogy, featuring The Cripple of Inishman, the Lieutenant of Inishmore and the Banshees of Inishir. And he moved from plays into a making a short film of his own in a film called Six Shooter from 2004. Starring Brendan Gleeson as a man who just lost his wife and is returning home via train. There he encounters another grieving couple and a crass and obnoxious young man with secrets of his own. Now, this film has some elements that Martin McDonough would bring to the fore in his next series of films, but already there's a. The film's a very peculiar kind of dark comedy it i think traffics a little bit in the coen brothers sense of very unfortunate happenstance Mm -hmm. and unusual conflicts that often lead to like brutally violent outcomes but one thing i notice is that a lot of this just seems to come from in the film comes from some emotional pain or anguish that from the various people who are uh, taking this trip along the train. Even the obnoxious um, youngster has his own reasons for behaving this way, or his own uh, skeletons, let's put it uh, this way. (laughs) Right. This feels like a dry run for the themes that McDonough is going to flesh out more in his features. But what he's interested in is already present. There's this constant battle between darkness and humor in his films. I, you know, we're, we are dealing with people who have all suffered a great loss. A, a man newly widowed, a couple who lost a child. These people are devastated. And into the mix 
is this kid who seems to have no sense whatsoever of loss of grief of what's appropriate to say to people who who have suffered those things. So he ends up just in their faces with no consideration whatsoever for their feelings and bringing in what is supposed to be humorous elements. So if the film is, is asking us to find some of these moments humorous, it's difficult in the situation and also difficult because he's not really dealing with an experienced actor uh, playing the young man. So he comes off, if he's supposed to come off in any way, like some of uh, McDonough's future characters are who are flawed, who have done terrible things, but we still have some kind of connection to him. We're, we're not allowed to have a connection with this kid. Mm. He does not really cast too much of a sympathetic figure for me either. Uh, as I hear you like describing him, <laughs> he kind of comes across to me as a cross between if Peter Pan decided to have um, Larry David's level of inquisitiveness. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a sense where there, he has no concept of people's personal boundaries on the one hand. But on the other hand... One of the things I think that was interest that the film's interesting trying in trying to explore is he actually never lies. Really, mm-hmm. he go even uh, even when something like horrible happens and someone asks about it, he completely says, "No, no, this this person fell off the train and the brains hit the wall all, all the way down," and which is exactly that's right. And people, and in fact, part of the humor comes from the fact that no one actually believes him that he did it in that. They just think that he's. Uh, being incredibly uh, saying awful things just for a fact. Right, he has no filter whatsoever. True, but what he is failing to filter is not deception or um, or chicanery or manipulation. He's just honestly expressing, boy, you know, the like for example, like you'd only show pictures of babies if they're uh, that that boy. That's an ugly baby. <laughs> He doesn't necessarily mean to make people... He's not saying this to make people angry. He's saying because that's just the first thing that comes to his head and the first thing that happens to come out of his Mm -hmm. mouth. (laughs) But make people angry, he does. The characters, perhaps we as an audience. But when McDonough reveals that this kid is actually the killer that people have been looking for who uh, shot his mother in the head from any other director that would just be it as far as audience sympathies go he would be just considered a threat that's right and then per the title the police uh, arrive and there's a big shootout and and the kid is killed now i personally and perhaps mcdonough would not have appreciated this uh, response. I was pleased <laughs> that the kid was killed. He had he had made an impression on me that made him uh, that made me happy for his removal uh, from the film. Mm-hmm. But who is not pleased is Brendan Gleeson's character, who has no reason to have sympathy for the young man, but but he does. Mm-hmm. Yes, and that's such a really fascinating detail. A fascinating turn that the movie gets because it's so inexplicable. Because in addition to the fact that this guy is a murderer, 
he's really been annoying Brendan Gleeson and and like being insensitive to Gleeson's character's emotional situation. And I want to take a step back to that 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 this that one of the things that Martin McDonough and you'll find that John Michael McDonough also have in terms of a secret weapon is the actor Brendan Gleeson. Gleeson is magnificent in this short film because he has real depths of despair and but amongst this despair there's a level of of consideration for uh the other riders on the train in dealing with this obnoxious uh character and eventually the fact that that empathy extends to this character itself is really interesting and i think it's i think it harkens in the idea of is there a possibility of redemption or giving a person an opportunity for not even a not even redemption, but the idea of reaching out towards another person, even if the person might not even deserve it? Forgiveness. Yes. Along with guilt, forgiveness is a theme throughout these films. What can we forgive? And and McDonough seems to have a very Catholic view. Of all this, which is that we must forgive if we are to remain civilized, if we are to move on with our lives through tragedy, that even the worst acts require us to not judge, to not condemn, but to try to even even consider the the worst of us more charitably than we might otherwise mm-hmm. a very fascinating approach to take on this uh, train ride of ill manners that we we take during the course of this film another thing that i'd like to note is that mcdonough also shows a little bit of the level of care and attention that that we've uh, uh exclaimed was one of the great virtues of edgar wright because but he does this also in a mastery of, of, a, of the shifts in tone of how things move. This is, in, under the span of this short film, we get these moments of horrific violence and then these moments of real dark humor and they switch and move among themselves in a, in a very intuitive and natural kind of way. And there's a particular detail as... Uh, Gleason and his wife had a very uh, someone they really really cared for, and it's shown in a picture of a rabbit. Very <laughs> mm-hmm. comes across super in a super super funny moment, but then it comes back by the end of this film in a poignant and yet very very strange uh, <laughs> way of how things uh, turn out. Right, because there's another theme to many of these films, which is that of suicide. And I guess when you're de- going so deep into the into guilt complexes, you might end up uh, in that area. And many of both brothers' characters, if not attempting suicide, commit actions that may as well be suicidal. Self-destructive. Yeah. But I mean, not, not just like, oh, I'm going to have, you know, a little bit more to drink, but, but literally 
I'm going to die and I don't care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's part of the sentiment that leaves yeah, that ending moment in a very weird place because it's a person who really doesn't get what he wants. He, he gives a, a statement which everyone can kind of relate in the most general sense. Oh, what a terrible day. <laughs> most, most people are lucky enough to not have the opportunity to have a, uh, be holding a rabbit with its head blown off when they're saying a statement like that, though. <laughs> but it turned out uh, this is a message that resonated amongst a certain portion of Oscar voters because Six Shooter won the Academy Award for uh, Best Live Action Short Film that year. Yeah, that's pretty surprising to me. I don't know what was in competition for it, but I don't see what people would have would have caused people to take notice to say, oh, this should be award-worthy. It's directed in a perfectly competent manner. There is none of... Well, apart from this attention to detail I mentioned, there's not a lot of visual flourishes or... or the, and the themes that are there is... In a kind of, like I said, a minor Cohen-esque kind of vein of, of dark comedy. But most notable for that it has these Catholic feelings underneath. But they're very subtly dealt with in a way that don't, that don't quite announce themselves. To me, it is more of an inexplicable question at the end of the movie as to what we are to think. More than saying, oh, wow, that was incredible, you know? Yes, and with all this success... These themes uh, found their way into his uh, first feature film. In Bruges, released in 2004, which follows two hitmen, played by Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson, who are ordered to wait out the aftermath of their latest job in the small, sleepy Belgian town of the title. While Gleeson's character enjoys the beauty and the history of this town, Farrell is restless and hates it. But he does find time to pursue a young lass he meets on a film set. In Bruges is part of a tradition that started in the late 90s of the Tarantino-esque type film um, involving hitmen, people on the wrong side of the law, having these incongruous conversations, and very funny moments are alternating with incredibly brutal moments in a way that like leaves us wondering just what... Um, sort of on edge, but in a real fun way, saying, well, what? I wonder what the heck is going to happen next. <laughs> this shadow of Quentin Tarantino is going to hover above almost all of these films. Maybe even less so here, but there is a very distinct way that this movie just wouldn't have been the same were it not for Tarantino. I, I think we are now so used to the idea that uh, 
criminals and underworld types can have these conversations that are so colorful and filled with uh with language that's that's so wonderful and evocative and humorous we have to remember that before reservoir dogs before pulp fiction these guys pretty much just went to shooting (laughs) and tarantino i think deserves so much credit for practically inventing this style that that not only got taken up by the by his clones but also adjusted and appropriated by by films more worthy like like I'd say this one because you also have uh, not just the Tarantino influence but the whole uh British crime genre influence right. so Probably the, the my favorite example of of this is uh, this wonderful 1980 uh, gangster film called The Long Good Friday, uh, with Bob Hoskins as this really nasty piece of work. And there's a certain cadence that a London gangster would bring to it that's a little different than the Tarantino-esque American versions. Mm -hmm. So here we kind of have a mixture of this Tarantino uh, verbal sparring, but with a distinct British flavor. That's a super cool point on comparing it with Long Good Friday because the plots of the two share that similarity of people who are sort of cast out they're in a little bit of an exile there's a there's a really bad situation that's hovering out in the margins but that might swoop in at any moment and but it's not a threat that's active at while during the most of the course of the story Mm -hmm. but it's something that's always in in their minds and this is this is definitely a movie where you get two distinct viewings if you've seen it before any of the details are spoiled and then after you've seen it. Because it very much takes you on this, on a humorous part, as they as they make a great team, Gleason and Colin Farrell, because Gleason shows these almost superhuman reserves of patience <laughs> and tolerance for Colin Farrell, who is so perfectly embodies like the hitman with the mind of a seven-year-old who did not want to go to this particular theme park. <laughs> and every moment is just really irritating him. <laughs> and everything that people are uh, supposed to delight in is something he just finds phenomenally annoying. <laughs> I'm going to be praising Brendan Gleeson to the heavens throughout every every movie he's in in this which literally but, should be which is pun not intended I right think. right <laughs> <laughs> but also Colin Farrell deserves a hell of a lot of credit he has often found himself in the kind of the Hollywood leading man niche more recently he's been doing much more uh, challenging material I, I love 
the lobster in which he's the lead and, and, and gives a phenomenal performance in. And this is the first uh, earliest movie I can recall where he really goes above and beyond the call of duty because considering this character's uh, behavior and what we later find out uh, that, that he's done on paper, this guy must must have seemed like a, a son of a bitch that you could not find any bit of sympathy for. <laughs> That's and, interesting. And, and, but 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 Farrell delivers this innocence to this yes. character. I mean, he's a he's a uh, he's a horrible guy. He's just constantly uh insulting everyone he comes across he is absolutely willing to resort to violence at any point whether warranted or not and as he's doing this we 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 talked about kind of the 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 young man and six shooter not really being able to sell the idea that 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 we should be with him that's but colin farrell does that through his performance so that no matter what we don't necessarily, we, we're not necessarily on his side, but we are at, we are absolutely wanting to see what makes him tick. Mm -hmm. And I would go further on that because I was for the most part seeing where he was coming from. Mm -hmm. He is able to deliver a way of showing just boy, I really, really don't want to be here. <laughs> and and if you've ever been in like, this just god awful business meeting or wedding, which has turned really sour, yet you really or or a family gathering that's that's gone south in a hurry, and you just felt, boy, this is just really awful. <laughs> he deli- he gives you that feeling and makes you makes you feel for his, his situation. And he has that, that, I think what you said about his innocence is totally key. Whereas the young character in Six Shooter, you get that intellectually. You understand that it's coming from, it's not coming from a necessarily an evil place. But here you feel it from him. <laughs> you feel that oh, she's just, he's just like a puppy. Like right. you don't get mad. You don't, even if a puppy bites you, right? You don't get mad at him. He's <laughs> just a he doesn't know any better, and you feel that from Farrell in the body of a hitman. Right, but 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 in my case, even before uh, the, the dark underbelly is is revealed, I was still kind of not with him because mm-hmm. in the uh, the debate over whether Bruges is a beautiful and, and and wonderful place to be or this boring dull hellhole to get the hell to get out of as soon as possible. Yeah. I really liked the town. Yeah. I was with Brendan Gleeson on that. I thought it was a, a, a gorgeous little place that I'd love to visit. <laughs> and so him bitching about the, the place so so uh, vehemently, now we, we understand a little later on why he feels that way, but I was just kind of like, dude, you know, lighten up. If you have to hide out somewhere, there's, there's worse places. My perspective comes in from a person who I've lived in, like, cities and urban environments most of my life. And so Bruges does is depicted in a wonderfully picturesque manner. And yet, I also feel like it has a little bit of that, like, small town 
oh, here's all the delightful buildings that are done just to present ourselves for your amusement in a way that, like, was parodied really nicely in the Chevy Chase movie Funny Farm. Mm-hmm. You see you see what I'm saying? Or something like, or something that, like, um, uh, like maybe the characters in Newhart, the, like, the environment <laughs> right. in the Newhart, the Newhart uh, TV show. So... Especially since the character, it's made clear that the characters come from a bigger city in the beginning. I could see how somebody like that, especially a youngster, wants to have some more excitement. And whatever Bruges is, it's not exciting. It, there, you have to you have to soak in the atmosphere and appreciate it. And he seems way too skittish to be able to go and appreciate it. Now, this is something that I think the movie is doing really nicely, and part of, a lot of it should be credited to McDonough's direction here because. He is not just showing the values of the city, but he's, you know, in a way that kind of evokes what I think the magic of what Guillermo del Toro does in some of his films, like Pan's Labyrinth. He makes it simultaneously a real place that you would like to visit, but then also it's kind of becomes a sort of fantasy or metaphysical kind of land. That, that's a really good point, and, and it ties in with the movie that's being shot there, which is described by one of the characters as uh, based on the Nicholas Rogue film, Don't Look Now, mm-hmm. which is a, a horror movie that very famously captured the uh, dark side of Venice. Exactly. And so while the genres are a little bit different here, that analogy is not an accident. So Bruges itself becomes a character in the film. <laughs> That's right. The city is in oppo- the city is in opposition with Farrell uh, as as Gleason is a maybe attempt to mediate mm-hmm. And Gleason's character is not is first off, he's just a, such a great straight man um, that enhances Farrell. If you weren't on Farrell's side, the fact that Gleason is so tolerant of of his antics, yeah, it really helps. It really helps us like uh, wonder about the dynamic between these two and be more sympathetic towards uh, Colin Farrell's. But it also is honors Gleason's journey as he as Gleason really values Bruges apart from. Just it being a picturesque city. He wants to point out what's interesting and fascinating, cool and beautiful, and uh, especially in the various religious places that they visit. In fact, there's a really great rant uh, when they want to visit, like, um, uh, a Eucharistic symbols, and, and oh my god, <laughs> Farrell is so delightfully inappropriate. It's like, <laughs> I'm going over here to see a cup. <laughs> <laughs> And so the first part of the movie is, to me, this just really great kind of fish out of water about the hitmen. Hitmen go on vacation. Right. Sort of. <laughs> and it works that premise really, really nicely. And every so often, though, when you just think it's a matter of, like, how much more can this young uh, gangster get pissed off, every so often, Gleason's getting messages from the big boss guy who, is, who sent them to this place and he has a very dark suggestion for what Gleason's character needs to do and it's very it's really cool how it's just a very nice monotonous tone a slightly syrupy voice on the phone that's giving all these 
uh, horrible things for Gleason to take in. And Gleason has to do a real good, ironically, Newhart kind of reaction on the phone as he gets these bad tidings. Right, because he finds out he is, in fact, going to have to kill his partner, who, in the course of Colin Farrell's first hit, uh, which was to off a priest, ended up accidentally killing uh, a young child altar boy as well, and becomes racked with guilt about it. And here's where Farrell's performance really has to deliver because he can lose us at this moment, lose us completely. Yeah. Yet without in any way justifying his actions, which are unjustifiable, we remain, we, we remain caring about what happens to him. And, and because he's so simple yet also has this deep sense uh, 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 of guilt about about what he's done, which also, as in the previous film, makes him suicidal. It's a very interesting balancing act that, that he's able to, to yes. pull off. Yes, that's right. That the, the tone that has to be maintained without us losing his sympathy for him is incredibly hard to do. And this, there's a climactic moment halfway through the film, which just <laughs> is some kind of mini dark comic masterpiece. I think that even the Coen brothers rarely reach the wonderful irony of Gleason approaching him to kill him. And then he realizes <laughs> that he's about to commit suicide and then stops him. <laughs> and But then... Farrell doesn't want to admit he was trying to commit suicide, but then he's wondering, well, why do you have your gut out? And and so there's like literally four levels of awkwardness upon who's killing who for what reason. Right, because in a standard film, I I was convinced that the rest of the film would be this cat and mouse game between Gleason and Farrell, who now have to be at odds. But that scene just pulls the rug out from under any sense of conventionality. Exactly right. And, like you said before, because Gleason not only won't kill him, but won't let him kill himself, we have to reassess, again, what kind of people can be forgiven, should be forgiven, and what what does forgiveness mean? Exactly. I want to step back and just see how McDonough's film, why I find In Bruce so remarkable, is that it is not just an effective evocation of of Quentin Tarantino's work, what made his work so amazing, but it is in fact, in many ways to me, an advancement about it. Just to harken back, when I saw Pulp Fiction... For the first time. And there's a moment where Mia Wallace is telling uh, John Travolta's character, Oh, you don't want to enter in here? What are you? A square? And she literally draws with her fingers. Mm-hmm. And you literally see the dotted lines. Right. And at that moment, that was a kind of, for me, a, a epoch-like moment in when watching movies. Because at that moment, I realized 
everything in the film is up for grabs. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I had literally, at that point, I had no idea what I was going to see next in a movie. None whatsoever. But I knew it was going to be awesome. Because this is a, because it was a person who just seemed to be on this great wave of being able to show creative and inspired things moment after moment after moment after moment from the most trivial to the most dramatic of ways. And until that moment that you in 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 Bruges, I was feeling that same kind of vibe. McDonald was trafficking in a wonderfully similar vibe mm-hmm. there. As, as as their banter is hilariously filthy, the <laughs> Farrell's anger just just can get really really hilarious. Just like if you ever wanted to express your frustrations at being in a bad place for yourself, but just doing the most hilariously profane way possible. You get this, and then it would get to something. Um, then it would get to just some really vo- crazy, violent moment. But then get back to the banter. You don't know. You really are left not knowing what to do. Right. And that that scene does that too. But it does this from this gigantic emotional reservoir. It is about really heavy sub about really heavy subjects that are given a level of seriousness. And they recontextualized all the franticness that you've seen Colin Farrell behave. It it turns it all around, and gives it a huge emotional depth. I liken it to like one of the moment in um, Hal Ashby's film Harold and Maude, hmm. when you see how how quirky a character Maude is, mm-hmm. and how she approaches life, and in such a unique way. And then when you and then spoilers for the next ten seconds if you haven't seen it, but there when you Notice that the tattoo from a concentration camp on her arm, and you realize that when someone's gone through that kind of event, her appreciation of life becomes all the more sweeter and more resonant as a result. But it's a gigantic um, revelation. And I felt that way in, in Bruges in a way that informed like just all, all these, in a way that other Tarantino-esque and Tarantino-esque films and Tarantino, his films himself, had never done. And just going off on that on that tangent, I don't think Tarantino's films should. Tarantino's making some of the most exciting and entertaining genre works I've ever seen. There is a level of pure filmmaking that Quentin Tarantino brings that is very rarely matched in modern film. But what he's not doing is trafficking in the kind of thematics that Imbruges is. So as opposed to kind of thinking that it's upping the ante on Tarantino, I don't, I don't think that can be done because Tarantino mm-hmm. is doing something completely different. Instead, I think what McDonough is doing is taking Tarantino's template and shifting it to his own. Hmm. You look at an interesting question, and to sort of answer it, I don't want Tarantino to necessarily be doing the kind of films of, of, the, of what the McDonough boys are doing. However, I do think, though, that there is a dimension to the subjects of your films that... Tarantino sort of got into with Jackie Brown, but he then pulled back to just do genre exercises. I, I mean, I'm with you that he those those exercises are have been amazing, and 
the first half, for example, of The Hateful Eight is one of the best things he's ever done. But I look at his work and I think, well, this is a guy who, how, uh, Tarantino I'm talking about, he's a guy who, def- who really never got the chance to visit The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> because when I saw in Bruges, I was not just, I was blown away because, like you said, he does use the styles, the, the sense of whiplash of our own expectations of an audience that Tarantino nailed mm-hmm. with his first two films. He gets that. He does that. And you get a lot of fun and enjoyment from that. But he also shows, at that moment of the uh, stopped suicide slash stopped murder moment, of a guy who shows a heart and an int- and a brain and a courage that Tarantino not only doesn't have but doesn't try for in his films. I want Tarantino to keep making films, but I think it's a shame because that he doesn't have those elements. But I find them in McDonough. And I don't think it's a shame at all because as great a film as I think In Bruges is, I think Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction are far superior films. Be- but they're doing different things. It's kind of like asking why there aren't more thematics in Ghostbusters. That's just <laughs> not what it's doing. It has its own set of goals, which in the case of Tarantino is to make ultra-violent revenge comedies and make them more stylistically exciting than anyone could have predicted they could be. Make them more intelligently crafted with better dialogue than just about anyone has come up with Mm -hmm. in, in the modern era. I think Tarantino's accomplishments are stunning, but they're different accomplishments yeah. than McDonough is interested in. Yeah, and, I, and maybe Scorsese is, an, is a little more apt for where he's coming from in that both directors are dealing with uh, Catholic sensibilities and yeah. both directors uh, imbue their characters with the, this guilt and we could even bring in a, a whole other film that might connect, uh, which is uh, uh, Abel Ferrara's Bad Lieutenant, oh, which takes nice. this idea of guilt and forgiveness maybe even further than McDonough does. It ta- well, that film takes it to like a sort of an exploitation process, mm-hmm. something where the the very where you kind of are repulsed by the griminess of that, and that's a really interesting comparison because. McDonough's film in Bruges takes the effects of Tarantino, the, the, his methodology of making like these scenes jump across from one kind of thing to another. Um, and, and McDonough uses that more, I think, than, than Scorsese, but he uses more, some of the more scorsese themes, to be sure. Perhaps it could be that I'm trying to make a comparison between, say, a painting versus, say, a sculpture. A sculpture obviously has more dimensions than a painting, but... Is that going to say that that would be inherently better? Maybe not. Maybe not. What what I really love about, though, about In Bruges is that those components are just more evident. And I was just as surprised that a film that was doing these things could go as deep. And I also want to point out that one of the other things I found so amazing about it is that 
right about this moment, you finally reveal who is the evil person talking at the other end of the phone. And he turns out to be just a wonderful third component of now now what was a great pairing of a duo now becomes a great um, uh, uh, a triple of uh, characters. Yes, we're introduced to Ray Fiennes, who gives one of my favorite performances of his, possibly his funniest performance. He's actually got some of that intensity that Bob Hoskins uh, brought to the Long Good Friday, yes. but uh, really concentrates just on the the comic possibilities because here is a character who is completely morally rigid. Yes. It's sy- symbolic of what, of everything that Gleason's character is not accommodating, accepting That's, yeah, and open-minded. Mm-hmm. Now fines comes into the situation and he is appalled morally, which is an interesting place for a criminal to be because yes. we can we we are, we are left to believe that this is a man who's killed many people in his own right totally but ruthless. he totally ruthless but has what in his mind is an incredibly strict moral code mm-hmm. yeah that's so cool how you contrasted gleason's attitude towards how events play out versus fines because in the middle now, now we're literally looking at, in a way, similar maybe to how the characters in No Country for Old Men behave. Now we're getting into a sort of play about, like, how should you approach the events that befall you? And the movie does a lot of great mileage on, in both comedic and I think dramatic points, mm-hmm. in how those ways of behaving um Will uh, will result in all these different crazy outcomes. For example, Fines's notions of propriety have just this part of this hilarious profane rant when um, Gleason and him have odds, and Gleason just points out completely accurately of what an awful human being he is, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. says, "I'm um, word I'm not going to repeat here, but says you're just awful. You're from an awful family. You're awful kids." And he's, "Hey, hey, come on." I know I'm an awful person, but don't you say anything about my awful kids. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, you leave my kids out of this. It's like, fine, fine, fine. I take it back. I take it back. Your kids are not awful. <laughs> and the and just how Fines is otherwise a perfectly ordinary, even though he's prone of rage in ways that you would make Sonny Carleone blush, mm-hmm. <laughs> he's still a family man trying to have a proper household. Who loves kids. He loves and... kids. Yeah. <laughs> And the, that that Farrell uh, killed a child is what makes him so inflexible on this matter. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, and and his <laughs> and not since Inspector Dreyfus in the Pink Panther movies has a guy been so willing to show his frustrations, just being trying to keep the frustrations under control and having it fail in such mm-hmm. a wonderful, wonderful way that happens a couple of times, but notably in one of my favorite lines of dialogue from that, from that year, poss- possibly ever when, when he finds out from that Gleason will not carry out what he wants him to do for something like you said, that he finds more, that is his moral duty to take care of the person who has killed a child. And as he's answering the phone, as he's listening on the phone and Gleason hangs up, just like, I think there's just a twitch in his eye and just starts smashing this plastic phone <laughs> to bits. 
to which his wife, who enters the room, and it's kind of clear that he is not the first time he's done something like this, says, oh, come on, please. And, and, she, and he just screams at her because, look, it's just an inanimate object, which he belts out, you're an inanimate object. That's a great line. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, God, the movie, yes, the movie is full of just wonderfully hilarious lines like that. Right, and, 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 and it's so funny, but at the same time, because of the tragic elements, there is a little bit of bitterness to every laugh you get, which uh, really makes it even more resonant. Yeah, they get not just more resonant, but just almost become more and more like spiritual as the film goes on. When um, Farrell is is starting off this burgeoning relationship with uh, with a girl in town. They have a lovely moment at the cafe where they're expressing their feelings for each other, and then it's followed by just this horrible, the um, uh, fall from a tower mm-hmm. out, out of the blue, and that leads that leads to a delightfully awkward uh, negotiation between uh, two hit people and the innkeeper, who is really <laughs> getting tired of all the hijinks that have been happening here. <laughs> And then when they return to the movie set, though, that almost becomes downright fable-like as snow starts softly falling and, and the lighting just becomes more uh, more like it's because of an otherworldly realm more than a, a movie set or even a town. Well, I, I have heard this uh, theory that Bruges is meant to represent purgatory in the world of this film. And that's hit home uh, in the scene where they uh, visit an art gallery and and see the works of uh, Hieronymus Bosch, right? Uh, which which deals with uh, grotesqueries descending to hell or or in purgatory, mm-hmm. and and at the end when Colin Farrell's character is shot, we don't know we're 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 left a little ambiguous as to whether he lives or dies and so there's this duality that the ending of the film really traffics in because you have gleason's forgiveness versus fine's rigidity and condemnation so finally the film asks and doesn't answer is he going? Is he forgiven or not? Can, or and can and can and and is the answer to that? Can he forgive himself? Right, right. You're left wondering and asking the question at the end. What's supposed to happen to him? What do we want to happen for him? Has if this is the end, is this a proper end for him? And it's. Brought home really nicely. Just another a great final line mm-hmm. of, wait, am I in heaven? Am I in hell? Oh, wait, I might just still be in fucking Bruges. <laughs> I've shined your shoes. I've moved your mountains. Marked your cards. But Eden is burning. Either brace yourself for elimination. So now we shift brothers back to John Michael, 
whose uh, feature film debut was 2011's The Guard, again with uh, Brendan Gleeson, this time as a crude, racist, drug-taking, prostitute-loving, violent cop, or guard, as they call them in uh, this part of Ireland, uh, taking place in a small Irish town beset by drug dealers. This brings American FBI agent Don Cheadle to the case. And guess who he gets partnered with? (laughs) So we're back to the praises of Brendan Gleeson, who we've seen be the moral conscience of films. And this time he is going to be... uh, this movie's Bad Santa. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, if Bad Santa was Martin Riggs from Lethal Weapon in Ireland, you've got your guy with Brenda Gleeson. Right, so again, just just like Colin Farrell's character in in Bruges, on paper, we wouldn't like him. But Brendan Gleeson, he kind of does a little bit of an Archie Bunker thing with him. (laughs) Like, he just says... The worst things ever, and, <laughs> and and like revels in his political incorrectness. But because of some magic that he's delivering in his performance, kind of like Carol O'Connor did in, in All in the Family, uh-huh. he he let he lets us in. He he lets us uh, want to relate to this guy, even though he's just being pretty horrible throughout. <laughs> he's he's horrible, but is. This movie I really enjoyed as a maybe a kind of funhouse mirror to what Eddie Murphy was doing in Beverly Hills Cop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this time, though, the fish is in the water, but it's all these other different non-fish that are busting into its fishbowl. Right. But the, irri- <laughs> but the irritation of people who are clearly have their own pretensions, uh, whereas... Gleason's character just wants to just get down to business. <laughs> that same kind of Beverly Hills Cop charm, I think, is really infused in this film. He very much has a, a one step. There's a line that's really cool said by Don Cheadle, who, by the way, is also a great straight man for yeah. Gleason, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is when he looks at uh, Gleason and says, I don't know if you're one of the dumbest men or one of the smartest people I've ever met. And Gleason just gives a perfectly wonderful sly smile to that, <laughs> which I think is part of what he's trying to accomplish. <laughs> right, because he they have to somehow find a way for this guy to be the right guy for the case. So you have this uh, initial introduction of Don Cheadle uh, to the police force, and, and Gleason is just going about trying to say the most offensive things he could think of, racially uh, anti-American stuff. Yeah, just just hitting it. But then when it comes to the the case itself and and these drug dealers, he has some insights that none of the other cops do. Yes. It, of course, helps that he is the one... He's such a rogue cop. And this is an interesting development on an, uh, on the Irish take uh, of the uh, gangster formula is that being a rogue cop means you can't be as easily bribed as all the rest of the police towards, <laughs> <laughs> towards uh, following the will of the gangsters. Right. 
<laughs> There's a wonderful moment where Cheadle, as another, well, as a, the ultimate fish out of water, in an environment which is which Gleason appreciates, but Cheadle finds out later does not. Like where <laughs> where Cheadle is going. Well, wait, they didn't bribe everybody. No, really, really, <laughs> really. <laughs> Uh, that's that's just that's delightfully handled, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's it's also really great to just see how these how this guy just handles. This is really fun in an as an incredibly sarcastic send up of serial killer uh, um, movies where they're pursued by two dogged uh, uh, cops. It takes the seven formula literally. As, as a a dead body has the words the number five and a half <laughs> written in blood, <laughs> causing the the two police officers to wonder well, why five and a half is there a <laughs> is there a half victim who's missing <laughs> some legs? <laughs> so we've got a really good uh, supporting cast here, a lot of whom. Uh, were ported over from uh, the short film we discussed earlier, yeah. the, the Second Death. Uh, Liam Cunningham plays the main uh, villain, and uh, we're going to see David Wilmot, who actually seems to be in every single one of the movies uh, <laughs> we're going to be discussing uh, as uh, one of the uh, psycho gangsters. That's right. When you show yeah. his picture, he had literally has one of the worst passport slash driver's <laughs> license photos of all time. <laughs> but but it leads to, to a, a, a wonderful anticlimactic climax because at one, at, at one point, the villains actually give up. Because <laughs> they were they were pretty they were so sure that the police force had been bribed and they didn't think they thought if if this guy went after them they'd be able to handle them uh, him very quickly but mm-hmm. then when they realize uh, that Don Cheadle's uh, bringing the ammo they're like okay we've had enough <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah it's a very particular kind of sensibility that I think really is fascinating in the guard. Because there's obviously been parodies of this kind of lethal weapon slash seven formula before, mm-hmm. but there seems to be this underlying sensibility, which is delivered consistently all the way through, I think, in the guard of it's not quite fatalism, like say some uh, Russian or Eastern European films could do, but it kind of harkens back to me for a statement that Renton from Train Spotting said about whales. Mm-hmm. It's like, Wales, Mike, what kind of con- country are we? Like, um, uh, some people hate the English. I don't. They're wankers. But we're colonized by wankers. We couldn't even have a decent country <laughs> to be colonized by. <laughs> so, <laughs> so much of, I think, that the guard comes from this whole sensibility of like, oh, jeez, what's all these people coming here and uh, trying all their business and... It seems to be uh, a phrase, uh, to coin a phrase, taking the Mickey, <laughs> or, yeah. ta- or maybe more accurate, considering all the drinking involved, taking the piss out of <laughs> all these conventions of the cop drama. The, oh my God! What could these clues mean? Um, oh, what's the proper police procedure? What's the uh, even even Gleason's own predilections are given this. 
uh, undercutting level of, ah, well, this is just what you're going to do. <laughs> right. He doesn't try to hide it. Like, he's, yes. he's, he's hooked up with these two prostitutes. He just doesn't care who knows it. Yeah. He's just like, I'm me. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> <laughs> and, and it leads to this. He has a real fun visual sensibility of, of both parodying these moments in cop movies, but then just putting in these really fun visual details. Like, there's a particular kind of showdown where a guy is shot, and he's he staggers over to a bed. And then he looks over at where two completely equal doors where a person could come from, mm-hmm. and he's he's antically waving a gun over which, which door the, <laughs> his uh, opponent could come from. And when when Gleason's character encounters the prostitutes, he's greets he greets them in the bedroom with one of the most magnificent robes I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> and the cutting between uh, Gleason and Don Cheadle's reactions are time and time again just so priceless. <laughs> Cheadle gives exactly the right commentary to all the horrific things uh, that uh, Gleason says. And it also does, there's another sensibility that I want to add in, which is interesting in comparison with the other films we were talking about in mm-hmm. the sense that they were sort of guileless. Here, time, here, while there's no filter, there's also an added level of, um, how would I put it, uh, bullshittery. <laughs> just the idea of just... There's an attitude of insulting people just to get a measure of what they're like and to Mm -hmm. see how much BS can they stand. Right, because that's kind of a question of the film. Is Gleason's character uh, really a racist or is he using racial insults just to uh, gauge the reaction? Exactly right. Mm -hmm. Yes. And also ties into a wonderful moment where he, where Cheadle catches him swimming on the beach. And he and when they talk on breakfast later, Gleason's saying, yeah, well, I was out fourth in the Olympics. Like, oh, bullshit. <laughs> oh, no, fourth. You know, they never give it for fourth. That's the horrible thing about it. <laughs> right. Which, which connects to the ending, which, uh, like uh, his brother's films, deals with, well, not, not suicide necessarily, but basically a situation in which Gleason could have in many ways escaped the situation. But we don't know. And we don't know if he does or not. Yeah. And and that is, that is uh, attached to the idea of, well, how good a swimmer is he? Right. And the film ends with this uh, level of ambiguity mm-hmm. as Imbruge did. Mm-hmm. Now, the difference is that uh, I think uh, John Michael is not quite as deep into thematics as, as Martin is. His films tend to be, at least uh, this one in particular, functions m- much more purely as a comedy, and uh, you know, there's not quite as much to grab onto. But he's also less concerned with making, like, tonal whiplash. It's known that, like, these characters are going to say horribly inappropriate things or do horribly inappropriate actions. Mm -hmm. So, but you know that's what's going to happen. And McDonough doesn't hide that. John Michael McDonough doesn't hide that from you from the very beginning where a horrific accident leads to... Uh, Gleason's character saying, "Well, this opportunity—they did drop this ecstasy or uh, LSD. Let's <laughs> let's just see what that's like." Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, the most distinction is that when he, uh, in a really 
fun yet kind of touching moment. He uh, Gleason has to deal with his uh, mother who is suffering from a terminal condition. And it's fun because the mother, while clearly suffering and in pain, is also the same kind of irascible, devil-may-care kind of spirit of Gleason as they are, are mocking the other people in the nursing home, For to take one example. Yeah, you really see where he gets it from. They're yeah. just, the two of them are just swearing up a storm. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so it's more a lot more consistent in a tone, but, I, but it's a tone of uh, inappropriate dark comedy that is maintained really nicely all nicely all the way through and i like what you said on the endings the endings are both managed to be ambiguous but they are ambiguous towards sort of different ends they ask questions but the question at the end of in bruges is is this guy saved or not, for whatever you define safe. Well, actually, multiple levels mm-hmm. you can ask the question, right? In the end of the guard, it's, well, what are you going to believe? You <laughs> well, got to think he was full of crap and he just and he didn't make it? Or are you going to think that he did? The question is still, is he saved? It's just not spiritually, physically. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Very nicely. <laughs> po- yes. Very good point. <laughs> nicely put, man. <laughs> So, meanwhile, uh, Martin McDonough's got a whole nother set of tricks up his sleeve. Come on now, who do you, who do you, who do you, who do you think you are? <laughs> Bless your soul. You really think you're in control? That was it in his next film, Seven Psychopaths, in 2012. This is about a screenwriter, perhaps not coincidentally, named Martin, played by Colin Farrell, who's working on a screenplay, perhaps not coincidentally, called Seven Psychopaths. His buddy, Sam Rockwell, thinks he needs some real-life inspiration. And boy, does he get it. (laughs) There is probably more Tarantino... In this film, I think, than than it in Bruges. Yes. You have touches like when each of the psychopaths appear, their number appears. Psychopath number one, psychopath number two, uh, with a a proper Tarantino-esque introduction. Mm -hmm. And each psychopath has their own particular story. and, And in a sort of similar way to how, like, everybody's, um character in everybody's colorful gangster character in Reservoir Dogs has not only their own motivations, but it's like their own flavor. They add their own flavor of acting style to the movie. Each psychopath, as we find in this story, has their own tale to tell. And the tales are explicit in a lot of cases. It's about the a, a lot of these psychopaths want their stories told. Yes, Tom Waits is a uh, rabbit-carrying psychopath. The, the rabbit, rabbit comes back from Six Shooter. Right. <laughs> uh, who, him and uh, his girlfriend, had, has throughout the years become serial killers of serial killers. Mm-hmm. Probably, I think, the most effective bit is this uh, wonderful story within a story 
uh, about a, a character known as the Quaker, yeah, uh, played by Harry Dean Stanton, whose uh, daughter is murdered, and he haunts the murderer uh, throughout his days until he realizes that the only way he can possibly get away from him is to slit his own throat and go to hell where he can escape him. Mm-hmm. But then when he sees Harry Dean Stanton from the window, he then slits his throat to follow him into hell. <laughs> yeah. It, such a, uh, yeah, it's a, I find it a really wonderful collection of all these different personalities and different approaches to, um, uh, psychopathy. Right. But I have to say that despite how some individual bits really work, they don't come together. Uh, and that's structure of the film. So I don't think anyone can complain about liberal borrowing from uh, Quentin Tarantino, mm-hmm. as Tarantino is known for doing a lot of borrowing himself. But you're on a little shakier ground in how much this film borrows from Charlie Kaufman's adaptation. Okay. Now, adaptation is the story of uh, two screenwriters, uh, brothers played by Nicolas Cage, and as they struggle to write their screenplay, the movie itself takes on the personality first of one brother and then the other. There, there is simply not enough time here to go into the intricacies that is adaptation, which is as magnificent a film as you could find, but is utilized in Seven Psychopaths on a much more surface level because you have the same conceit of the writer whose imaginings basically bleed from his story into his own life in a way whose rules aren't necessarily consistent are are not necessarily consistent. Mm -hmm. And because you're not dealing with the level of Charlie Kaufman's writing, having such a tenuous line of reality makes it so that you no longer have stakes in Uh the fates of these characters, because anything can be fiction and anything can be real within the, the body of the film. Right. Kaufman does something quite miraculous in adaptation because his mind is so amazingly attuned towards just the layers upon layers upon layers of, of, of things being about things, being written about things, being about people, about written about people, and so forth. And he's able to keep track of that. Mm-hmm. So you are able to keep track of these characters as people and as the written characters at the same time. And McDonough doesn't quite have that kind of control. So there are points where you can just easily be lost in singing, oh, this is a writer's fantasy or concoction and not something that you need to accurately deal with. Now, sometimes it comes back again for me anyway. There is a very amazing 
uh, recontextualization moment when you have uh, involving Christopher Walken as mm-hmm. okay, and they, uh, appropriately enough, a uh, Hans <laughs> who joins <laughs> um, Martin and his friend on a, a particular kind of caper, and he's wearing this very ridiculous-looking ascot. And, and this combined with his a performance that is deadpan even by Christopher Walken <laughs> standards <laughs> leads to a, at least an initial impression that okay I'm be, I'm I'm amused by the how low key he reacts to the horrible things that are befalling him but I think for me right at the moment when I was starting to think okay this is Christopher Walken phoning it in but then you realize why he's wearing. You find out why he is wearing that ascot, and once again, McDonough pulls the rug out from under me to just go, "Oh wow, there's a huge emotional component that's rolling, rolling under this." And it even helps enhance things like Harry Dean Stanton's journey to go that there's more of a there's more of a emotional sense that's going on, or that this stuff can th- in theory touch in on. Now, those moments are not as prevalent as I feel that in Bruges does. So it does more become a genre a genre exercise, and more explicitly so. I We're not buoyed along on the story as, as much as seeing, okay, as intellectually, like thinking, okay, this is why this is happening, and the characters are doing this, and they're commenting on that's why they're doing this. Well, I mean, it's perfectly cast, and, and Walken gets a chance to do the things that, that Walken has yes. become known for, mm-hmm. and there's this uh, wonderful scene where he's uh, told to stick his hands up at gunpoint, yes. and he just says no <laughs> in a way that only Walken yes. can deliver uh, a one syllable. Right. But also, Woody Harrelson is really good as uh, the menacing um, gangster leader, and and Sam Rockwell kind of has this strange line he's got to uh, stay in the middle of, uh, exactly. as far as the na- nature of his character. But there's there are so many moments where we are reminded that we're watching a movie as as characters uh, discuss the big shootout. Yes. That has to happen. Mm-hmm. And at one point, uh, one of the, as they're uh, driving away, uh, they're talking about the script, and, and it's like, well, our leads just drive away into the desert, <laughs> yeah. as they, in fact, drive away into the desert. Yeah. And so there's a great line in Spinal Tap that's, uh, you know, there's a fine line between uh, clever and stupid. <laughs> and I yep. think that might be the, the tagline for this because I don't really buy any of this uh, on a uh, entire film level. Mm-hmm. It's just a little too self-aware is just a little too many winks to us. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there are like these individual little gems yes. that don't really come together for me. Right. Adaptation has a strength in that it's basically about depending upon how you look at things, mm-hmm. three or four characters right. and how they deal with 
the struggle of adapt of adapting something. This is more expansive in a way that in Bruges was not in terms of doing all these different characters and having all these different individual stories. But that suffers from the central structure because the points of view of the of the characters and their stories are that are intermingled with the central story in a way that makes you just think it's all storytelling from all from everybody. Right, because at one point a character is shot in the head. Uh, in when you see the wound, it's a killing shot. Yeah. I mean. And he just kind of keeps talking. Yeah. <laughs> and it's yeah. like, okay, he's talking because he's fulfilling the needs of the script within the script. Exactly. Maybe the shocker isn't that that uh, McDonough can't quite square the circle on this, but the shocker is how adaptation managed to handle this amazingly difficult stuff that perfectly. Exactly. Yes, yes. You're... Um, Seven Psychopaths has its own pleasures, and, and there's moments of fun, and the, the profane uh, humor of absurdity happens regularly throughout the course of the movie. But when you see how it falls short on it, it makes you appreciate what happens in adaptation all the more. Because the conflicts in adaptation actually... be you. I think, the, I think what puts adaptation over the edge is the confrontations and the conflicts come from the process of adaptation mm -hmm. and it makes that the conflict whereas seven psychopaths doesn't quite know it doesn't make the agony of writing be part of the process it kind of seems to tilt to the mechanics of what the different gangsters are doing in all the different bloody encounters mm -hmm. and of a guy shot in the head who has to fulfill his script mission is the ultimate example of how well, at that point, you can't really care about that. Whereas a character getting consumed by an alligator in adaptation <laughs> is becomes a very necessary action of the writer's journey in that, in that story. <laughs> so, so it's a it's a great. Those two are a really nice comparison points to like. If you're gonna do meta, we have to judge where to put the emphasis, and and keep the audience there. This is something Seven Psychopaths doesn't quite do. <laughs> and it's a little bit of a miss. I, I do agree. It's a little bit of a miss, though. Personally, I'm phenomenally charmed by the cast. I think Woody Harrelson is massively underrated as both an actor who can do crazy, absurd things and give a le menace and give a level of seriousness. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll be uh, giving my love to Woody even more a little later in yeah. in the podcast exactly yeah. that right it'll right it uh, maybe have a more successful iteration coming quite soon yeah <laughs> so th this movie absolutely does not lack for ambition and uh, step for step uh, brother John Michael is also going to take on a a different kind of project uh, that's quite ambitious ambitious in and of itself uh, with Calvary. What do we want? And when do we want it? And how would we feel if we knew that we were never gonna get it? And where did we start from? And where are we going? Can anyone here say with any certainty that they know what they're doing? Ever feel like an awkward? 
Brendan Gleeson plays Father James, who's at the the center of this 2014 film. It begins with uh, the small town priest hearing a confession that soon turns into a murder threat. But the potential killer is only one of his flock and not the only one looking to challenge his faith and his patience. Mm -hmm. It starts on kind of a meta level as well as the confessor slash would-be killer uh, says something god-awful to the priest in the confessional and then says, follows it up with, now isn't that a heck of an opening line? (laughs) Yeah, there's some self-awareness here also. Now, one way you can look at this film is you can call it Holy Noon as... It is a ticking clock kind of scenario. The would-be killer gives the priest a week to set his life in order, and the structure of the story has the days go by as he encounters the people in this town, one of whom he feels is going to be is the one who has threatened him and will kill him. And the film looks at how he's going to react to such a crazy, death-threatened situation. Part of, of the strangeness of, of this film is how casually the priest uh, handles this information. It, it, it really kind of undercuts any reality of the film because we're told early on that he has a pretty good idea who 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 he is. Yes. We're also told that because of how he was threatened, he is not bound by uh, the confession to keep the information secret. He can go to the police. He can also leave and not meet the fellow at the uh, at the allotted time. Right. And then as we get through the movie, it's just very interesting how other things distract him from what really should be a pretty central question of his own life or death, which takes us back to this overarching theme of how characters in, the, in, in in movies from both of these brothers will, will put themselves in situations where they could very well be killed. Mm. Yeah, I think you're onto something because there's a sacrificial aspect to what this priest is doing. The would-be killer mentions that nobody would care if you kill a bad priest. But if you kill a good priest, people are going to ask why. And I think that's a central theme of what cavalry is trying to uh, explore. And I think a lot of it is, in fact, tied to the fact that he is a priest. And this is a moment 
fairly recently after a number of the uh, sexual abuse scandals had roiled the Catholic Church. Yes, and the fellow who's threatening him tells him that he was a victim of that abuse. Now, this is obviously a really heavy topic and and something that deserves focus on in a film about faith and 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 doubt and and the church. But it's handled very quickly. Uh, it, it it's mentioned at the beginning and it's mentioned at the end. But it's in no way given kind of the weight that it probably should be because the movie is intent on maintaining its whodunit aspect to it. So this mystery genre of we're meeting all these eccentric, strange people in the town, all of which are giving this priest a hard time. Mm -hmm. And we wonder, well, could it be this one? Could it be that one? But because the movie's concentrating on the whodunit, it's really short shrifting the motivations of the character once he's revealed. That's true, because his actions are no more buffoonish or threatening before you reveal him than any other character, each one of whom has these flaws and each one of whom seems to have a pardon my pun, but unholy level of fascination (laughs) upon what the priest thinks of the things that they do. There is a scene with Aidan Gillen, uh, an actor from the uh, initial short, also one of the Game of Thrones guys, who is a a local doctor. Yeah. And uh, he's a little agitated and he's got some words for the priest. He delivers it in such an intense manner. He corners the priest and in a, in, in an eccentric speech worthy of a bond villain. Yeah. Just spits out every single word of his invective. And there's no reason for it. This is just the town doctor. He hasn't been given any actual story reason to be this agitated (laughs) at this priest. (laughs) Right. And in a seven psychopaths kind of move, he even makes explicit that, well, it's mine. It's, I guess it's my role to be the cynical doctor who's seen too much death. (laughs) Yeah. So my all time favorite bad movie is uh, a 1977 killer whale movie called Orca, uh, which was one of those Jaws ripoffs that that that, that came out, and uh, okay. and I'm in no way trying to imply that this movie is that bad, but the, the, there is a commonality in that the thing I I love slash hate about Orca is however much of a silly uh, killer whale movie it is. It is written in a way that ev- that the writer and director are convinced that they are making Citizen Kane. <laughs> Everything is delivered with this level of profundity and seriousness, all of which is not has nothing to do with the, the silly story they're telling. Now, th- th- this is not a silly story, but it is that kind of writing. 
um, there's a lot of speechifying. And, yeah. and we've talked in previous uh, podcasts how much I love kind of theatrical flourishes from people like David Mamet and Aaron Sorkin and Joss Whedon and Quentin Tarantino, all those guys. But what they don't do is distract you from the film and make you imagine the writer sitting there at the table writing his lines and going, oh, that's a good one. <laughs> and like that's in, a feeling I was getting while I was watching this. You mean like at any moment he could be like the ending credits of a Stephen J. Cannell uh, uh, <laughs> title sequence where he's typing away and then he throws the paper into an air as he's, as he's written another masterpiece? Right, right. Okay. <laughs> hmm. I'm giving the film a little more credit than you uh, in that there is a lot of speechifying by some real weirdos. And the way that the characters are the, in this parish are drawn uh, verges on, and in some cases leaps straight into the grotesque. Mm-hmm. The Aiden's uh, Bond villain delivery is very well apt as every line is said this way. And it's clear that the writer that McDonough intended that because it's followed by Gleason saying... Why the hell did you tell me that story? <laughs> <laughs> and then rushes to it rushes to attack him. <laughs> um the my favorite like what the hell moment in there is um a guy who is a male prostitute but his every action and demeanor and his very voice is a dead ringer for the whip-smart wiseacre kid from Brooklyn from every <laughs> one of these 1940s war movies. Like, hey, hey, father, hey, father, you want to hear what I did in the back row there, father? Yes, he seems to be adapting a adopting a James Cagney voice for no discernible reason. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, father. Look, can I tell you what I did on the bathroom over last week? Well, let me tell you, father. Everybody wants to tell this father something, <laughs> right? So, and on the other side of the coin. From all these eccentric and weird supporting uh, cast members, Brendan Gleeson is like this rock holding this movie together by the sheer force of his acting ability. Mm-hmm. He's like the Johnny Cash of actors. He is pure <laughs> authenticity. Whatever. Nice. He, I, I, I mean, what. All the kind. Of, there's a lot of, I think, ridiculousness going out, uh, going around in this movie. But it ta- it took me a while to actually come to that conclusion because Gleason is so adeptly handling all the complexities, all the interactions. Maybe it's even more impressive how this guy shows his acting chops. In a movie that doesn't even earn them, but he brings to the table. That was really nicely said on the Johnny Cash-like qualities <laughs> of Brendan Gleeson. Not something I ever would have come to mind. <laughs> While you may believe or not believe in this or that other character in Cavalry, you never stop believing in Gleeson's priest character. Even when his own character has doubts, mm-hmm. you never stop believing in him and wanting to see what he'll do and hoping uh, things will do well. Even and, and I think that's actually in a contrast to all those other characters because 
he's very I think he's very much meant to represent the place of the church in both the grotesque sense and in the true sense of what would be the church's purpose. One thing that took me aback on on the film was how the would-be killer goes and says, well, we if you kill a good priest, people will talk. But then when you see how the denizens of this town and this parish hold the priests in different levels of <laughs> contempt, on the one side, you just go, well, they're not really going to talk that that good about him Well, if, if something horrible was to happen to him. And in fact, actually some horrible things happened to him before the fateful day. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And at the same time, they have this really weirdly unnatural interest in what happens with uh, and what this priest thinks of them. There's a moment where um, a lady who's having an affair with an, uh, with an African fellow literally interrupts this pre- uh, the priest and, her do- and his daughter having a perfectly ordinary tea to go and not only say, oh, I'm about to have a tryst with my lover, and while rubbing her nose in a way to imply she's just had some fine cocaine beforehand, mm-hmm. uh, what do you think about that? To, to which I like literally said at the screen, don't anybody in this town have a TV or something? <laughs> I mean, isn't the point of having an affair is that to take care of your boredom, partly that you don't need to also, I mean, are, are, is there some uh, particular uh, condition that your lover needs to now have a priest watching? <laughs> What's going on here? Well, and, <laughs> the if the confessional turns out to only be a place for um, a murder announcement, Every other place in town turns into a confessional. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's kind of what I was thinking where the movie is going. That the attitude of these people towards the priest is sort of meant to be a a similar way to how the cold culture had an attitude towards the church. Because the church has a really important place in Irish society. People were very, very faithful in, in the culture. And so when these scandals roll, uh, rolled throughout the church, it obviously had an effect throughout the world. Mm-hmm. But I think here you're seeing how both they have awful things to say about this priest awful things to say about how much the priest was culpable or not for all the abuses that were happening in in the in the church at the time and those things are not exactly inaccurate but it also ties in with how obsessed they are is that there's something that the church was offering Mm -hmm. that is now lost they can't get it and the resentment i think the resentment that they feel for him is partly because he's becoming a scapegoat in a way or <laughs> sacrificial lamb perhaps ah. towards those feelings to say and in a way it's there was a really interesting detail that i found while looking further into this movie in that the parishioners number in the 12th hmm. a very discipline <laughs> or disciple a significant number yes a yeah. very significant number mm-hmm. and the the ti- and that brings the title into focus i think because cavalry was um, the um, mountain where Jesus was crucified. And before that, he had um, said that upon his crucifixion, he would take in the sins of everyone. And maybe that's kind of what the movie's trying to say underneath these 
these very quirky characters and the kind of dark dark gallows humor and sarcasm with which how they treat the priest the sarcasm is an is a way of masking this kind of pain of the lack that they they don't can no, that they can no longer rely on the priest and and his parish yes that is definitely an underlying theme and I just kind of wish that the we had more time to have it actually be about the results of of the church sex scandal and what that meant to different characters so that instead of being so enigmatic about the hostility because there's really only one character who brings it up at all and says he's affected by it. And if other characters are affected, are feeling that way, are even by proxy distrustful of the church and the priest because of it, there's a lot of story beats that could make that theme tighter. That doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. It's a little more random than I would like as well. And the final moment would be a great statement upon the nature of forgiveness. But I don't think that one of the characters involved was built up enough to go and justify that too much. So it, it would work in and of itself, but the film did not really build to that. So I think maybe to different degrees, we both found this a bit of a mixed bag. Mm-hmm. If John Michael McDonough showed himself very adept at... Uh, suspense and comedy in previous films he seems a little shakier when trying to take on the deep spiritual uh questions that his brother seems more able to do Mm -hmm. and he may have realized it himself because he's about to do a complete 180 or maybe you can actually say it's a 360 because he's going to Go for very similar material with the guard with his film War on Everyone in 2016. This is a film where Alexander Sasgard and Michael Pena play two very, very corrupt Albuquerque cops. Now, these two cops get wind of a heist that's masterminded by a British lord. And the story involves the heist's missing money, a romance with a marching band major, <laughs> an adoption of a homeless boy, all while these cops are trying to rack up as many bribes and payoffs and car accidents as they possibly can. Well, this is just garbage. This thing took the everything that was good about the guard and throws it away in an unfunny, incoherent, loud, and annoying movie. So... For one, you have these these two lead actors. You have uh, Alexander Sarsgaard, 
might be a good actor, uh, but he has zero comic timing, none whatsoever. <laughs> and then you have Michael Pena, who does have some comic timing and has been good in other things, but is a kind of an inexperienced actor and is completely unprepared to bring any level of relatability to such an awful character that he plays. So what works in the guard is you have the two cops with the different personalities. Now they basically have the same personality. They're if both you can call it a personality. Right, right? One, one between them. Uh, they're, they're both on the same corrupt, bad cop level. And so there's no dramatic or comedy tension between them at all. They're, they're, they're both cool with what, what the other's doing. So they get little character quirks. Like Michael Pena's character, for a, he's a family man, and for some reason they just make a point of him and his wife talking highbrow Greek mythology <laughs> at random moments, I think just to show that, uh, that McDonough knows stuff. And cause the movie, the, 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 the actual plot and structure of the movie are so incompetent that he seems to want to go out of his way to make sure we understand that he's read things. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's Yeah. <laughs> The things that you are slamming the movie for are both completely right and at the same time is, I think, something that intrinsically the movie is trying to actually do. <laughs> mm -hmm. When you have these cops behaving in just these absolutely vulgar and terrible ways, and in between they start like spouting stuff about Nietzsche... It's incredibly weird and and distracting, off-putting, and, and eventually becomes very irritating in a short amount of time. Um, <laughs> and the impression that, um, that what would happen if a guy with a graduate degree in English decides to make his own first Tarantino movie <laughs> <laughs> becomes pretty evident. After a while... I started to think that maybe um, John Michael McDonough could start changing his name to Clifford McClavin <laughs> <laughs> because these facts are just so irrelevant. Right. <laughs> these little stupid trivia bits from high culture are just rendered so irrelevant by what this passes for a story. In and, and eventually the villain decides to start doing that too. Yes. So pretty much everybody but Skarsgård gets some kind of hoity-toity uh, mm -hmm. intellectualism. Right. But yeah. the reason why I think that's part of what's happening with the story is I also clued in by the title, which is like War on Everyone. It calls to mind this very uncharitable um, parody of uh, British kitchen sink dramas I, it's like sort of an SCTV parody I saw from somewhere where, pardon my uh, French, ironically, it eventually descended with all the different members of the family, including the little kids, going, fuck you, oh, fuck you, <laughs> fuck you, fuck you. This movie seems to be that sentiment in pure form. 
on the cop car, where there's a bit of whimsy and some charm in the guard towards doing this. Here, it's not just taking the piss from the formula, but literally uh, taking in the entire, like, refinery <laughs> out, of, out of the whole ordeal. Like, there is, um... <laughs> there, for example, there is a moment when, what you said, the main bad guy is saying these highfalutin things. He's nothing but that. That's literally every word that he says is this right. attempt of being like, including like telling his lackeys about things when they've clearly established themselves to be way too dumb to uh, be able to draw breath in a lot of cases. There's another moment where where Pena is uh, uh, talking to people on the phone and he says something along the lines of, and I'm not even going to credit McDonough's references. I'm just going to say an equivalent. He said, well, this famous artist and this famous musician both like shot themselves and they, uh, and they tried to shoot themselves to death, but they both missed. And he's just telling the person on the other line of the phone. Then he says... You don't believe me? Oh, yeah, of course, you wouldn't believe me. Well, screw you, too. And he hangs up and says, oh, lousy paramedics. <laughs> At that moment, I kind of felt I was getting a little bit of a window of Mr. McDonough's life. That uh, this is a kind of a conversation thing that he's regularly has. And is something that he uh, feels, well, all this education that I know about, what is it good for? To put into cop movies? I might as well. <laughs> And there's so many points in this movie where I actually think the the stupid things about it is literally not just because it's the story is incoherent, but because this guy's just like, oh, screw this. You know, see what I'm saying? Right, but I, I wonder if this might have been some kind of attempt at, at commercial viability because he's like okay so what 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 did i do well the guard and that had a very irish sensibility yeah now he's like well the real money's in america let's kind of take this attitude and transfer it to these kind of ugly americans and and, mm-hmm. and, and see what happens yes and oh right, and by and what else what else do americans like oh they like guns they like things exploding they like uh car chase scenes that make no sense yeah and so it's like he dumbed his shit down for us mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah it's a way of just holding the genre in Whereas the guard was tweaking the formula, War on Everyone is holding everything in the cop buddy movie genre in utter, complete contempt. And when you say about the Irish sensibility, that leads me to just uh, think on how the characters in Cavalry behave with regards to the priest. And there's a... As opposed to, like, sometimes people can act in a passive-aggressive way... Those characters and every character in War on Everyone act in an aggressively passive manner. Mm -hmm. What do I mean is that every interaction is about, like, what's the most insulting, rotten, awful thing that that I can say to this other person? Which includes Pena's character. You say he's a family man, but he treats his family like garbage as well. Which is supposed to be funny, and it's just not. Yeah, yeah they're, they're, I mean the the kids and him they're 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 swearing each other like sailors, yeah. and I'm like this movie actually you know I, I 
I'm not nine years old anymore. I, I, I'm not gonna, it's, I'm not gonna giggle every time somebody says fuck, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But there is, yeah, there's a sensibility on here where it kind of undercuts, it not only undercuts this whole cop genre, but it actually even undercuts in his like own writing because there's certain beats where he's trying to go through the motions where it seems like he makes it he's aware whether consciously or unconsciously that he's going through the motions mm -hmm. when the two cops have a moment where they decide whether they need to team up to do a big final mission. Pena delivers. Well, I am doing this because you are my friend in the most flat, unaffected manner possible. Right. <laughs> um, there's a would be sort of romance that happens, which is developed in such a contrived way so that, a first a female enters the picture and then a kid enters the picture to which the uh, the character who up till now has led an American psycho kind of life <laughs> has said, well, I guess we are now the nuclear family. Um, and then there's a moment which features the third or second Stupidest thing I would want eliminated in movies since the jump scare. Yeah. <laughs> where somebody is shot and you have a moment where you wonder, oh, is he dead or not? But then it turns out he has the bulletproof vest. For the love of God, if I could do an edict to just make sure that any cop movie will not have bulletproof vests, that would just be such an improvement because it is so cheap. <laughs> So cheap to give people the idea, oh, is he dead or not? Oh, oh, well, it's the bulletproof vest he had on the whole time. Ha, 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 ha. Yes, so who would have thought of such such a device except right. for the thousands of other films that came exactly before? Exactly right. Exactly right. But yeah. Pena, after his eyes open, he goes, I like bulletproof vests. In a way, like a, uh, like a three-year-old talks about a lollipop. So... It's clear that McDonough knows, okay, this is garbage. We know it's garbage. I know it's garbage. You know it's garbage. And this is the level I'm going to deliver to it. One way, though, that I would say that, like, he is actually noting this explicitly, aside from the title, actually two different ways, mm -hmm. is there's a scene where a guy is taking heroin in a stable, and then the horse is kind of looking quizzically at what this guy's doing shooting up. Okay. To which I'm like, now, wait a minute. Now, I'm, I'm an awful, horrible person for going to puns too much, but you do know one of the names for uh, heroin is horse. Yes. So I just like, wait, is that what's happening? But then there was actually a moment where, oh, there, but actually there's a moment where you actually have two, two hoodlums, one black, one white, giving each other a foot massage. Yeah. And I'm just, well, wait a minute, man. Someone's following a promise that was given in the very first 10 minutes of Pulp Fiction. <laughs> okay, you're bringing, bringing, going full well, circle Tarantino well, I mean, on that. Right? Yeah, all right. It's pretty interesting that it's there, right? Sure. And, and, and that was a little more and more interesting than I was thinking from the beginning of the movie, that's for sure. And there's a moment in the movie where I actually laughed out loud which literally says about the ridiculous of the cop formulas mm -hmm. where they've tracked down one of the suspects. And they say, you'll never believe it. The guy's in Iceland. And then it cuts to them traveling to Iceland. <laughs> these, these, these cops from Albuquerque take a trip to Iceland and they're just standing outside a building where one of, the, one of them says, 
well, we're well, we have to just find this guy in Iceland. So mm-hmm. we'll stand around until we until we can find him. And the other cop explicitly says, "I, you know, I don't really think that's much of a plan, or it's gonna really." Oh, there he is. <laughs> Right, so and, and the point, the, un, the the unspoken part of that joke is, is this is an African American character, true. and that there are no African Americans in Iceland. Well, yeah. true that is, but but they spend enough time pointing out how ridiculous that premise is mm-hmm. that I think that gives that sort of gives what this guy is doing, which is giving a really really sour raspberry upon this upon this formula. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. I I give him the credit that this was that this was something in any way subversive. So all this comedy falling flat is one level of badness, but the movie is, is not done yet because mm-hmm. it introduces. You mentioned that this this uh, kid character. Yeah. In, into the proceedings, who has this horrific background of having been sexually abused. Yes. And uh, up until this point, you know, we're, we're basically just failed gag after failed gag. And so how much is this not earned yeah. to now have the, this, this tragic... Uh, kid character existing only to provide some humanity to the uh to the scars character exactly uh, that's the lowest moment in the movie for me because if you're gonna make a film where people wallow in their immorality their criminality the way of going getting away with doing bad, horrible things and a and the and the horrible world of which they're trying this stuff that, that's one thing but it's so incredibly cheap to just use child abuse as the way of saying well see no this is these guys are actually good guys and you should want them to succeed in their mission instead of uh, seeing how they things can go wrong or how they can get away with uh, horrible crime and said no no they're really nice guys and and you should follow them when They've behaved been nothing but complete jerks, at least, all throughout, up, up until this point. And, like, case in point, even that scene fails mm-hmm. because Skazgard starts with him playing with a toy wind-up bull to amuse this kid on his table. And he's, oh, look, look, moo, uh, he's saying moo or, or howdy <laughs> um, <laughs> in a way that implies that he's had some head damage. Right. <laughs> and when the kid tells him in his very flat, unaffected way about this horrible things that have befallen him, say, you, you see this real anger flare up in his eyes, and Skazgard delivers that well, but unfortunately this is a movie where he could have been just as angry as if his wind-up toy bull had failed. <laughs> so yeah. it does not, it is not, it is the textbook example of not earned. So not only would you be better off watching the guard than this, but there is another film that came out this very same year that, uh, dealt with some similar material way better. Uh, the nice guys with uh, Russell Crowe and and Ryan Gosling. Yeah. It's really interesting Uh, how, because those guys both are amoral in their own way. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's really interesting to see why did that work? And well, I mean, thing- I think for one, they had better material to deal with, but also 
they had far better actors. I mean, Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling found this comic groove that they got into. Yeah. And it was it was really effective. Mm-hmm. And and uh Pena and Skarsgard never find that. They have no chemistry with each other and their characters have no distinct personalities other than being uh psychotic and dumb. <laughs> I think one other thing that the nice guys works in their favor is that Shane Black while recognizing the absurdities of things and put allowing us to like get a, like a one step removed appreciation for the kind of cop formula that he patented with Lethal Weapon, but he also has a, a great affection for those characters, and an, and the affection shines through. The affection right. for what makes this stuff enjoyable, whereas so much in War of Everyone is lives down to its title of going, you like this movie, well screw you. You stink. Because even if you're dealing with corrupt corrupt cops on a comedy level, they need to be kind of roguish uh, on a certain level. It, it, it's one thing if, if it were some kind of serious study of corruption in the police force. That's not this movie. It's trying to be funny. So if you can't like them even a little bit, even yeah. on a oh, look what they can get away with kind of thing and want them to succeed in their mission Mm -hmm. and want them to kind of grow as characters in ways that are organic and not forced. These are all things this movie fails at. Fortunately, we don't have to end on this mess because Martin McDonough comes back in a really big way. In three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. This 2017 Oscar winner stars Frances McDormand as a grieving mother who is sure the police aren't doing enough to catch her daughter's murderer. This puts her on a collision course with officers played by Woody Harrelson and Sam Rockwell as prejudice and anger threaten to rage out of control. Whereas I might sound a little confused by war on everyone i kind of get the gist of the movie and maybe it's part of just my sorting process of trying to find something interesting in it three billboards has sort of the opposite problem for me is that i love nine parts of this movie to death Mm -hmm. and yet i still to this day i struggle to wonder just how good the movie really is hmm i think it's quite good um First of all, you've got monumental performances by everyone. And, uh, you know, Sam Rockwell and Francis McDormand won their Oscars for it. But I think the, the secret weapon of this film is actually Woody Harrelson mm-hmm. uh, as the police chief uh, dying of cancer, who hits unexpected notes 
in his dealings with McDormand's character and Rockwell's Mm -hmm. and really starts to think about his legacy and what it means to die with dignity. Now, one of the reasons why I get so confused about this is that it's an expansion in the kind of tonal whiplash that... um, McDonough was able to do really successfully in in Bruges, but it's so much faster. It's so much more fine-grained in Three Billboards. And whereas in in Bruges, the big emotional, dramatic moments happen at this point or at this point. Here, they're interpersed and they're part of the mix of different feelings, how people get in in this movie. You get this these moments of just incredibly offensive profanity where you're pushed really off to the side and then it gets to a moment of horrific violence. But then moments of overwhelming sentiment come right after. And I was pulled this way and that. Like, when I first heard about the movie, I thought it was an attempt to kind of be a a, a true crime-esque statement of how can the police go and solve this? Um, crime. Mm-hmm. I was very much not expected for how much it is starts to be a flurry of of uh, profane insults not seen since in the loop is how this film starts. Right, because uh, McDormand's character is struggling not just with grief, but with anger, with wanting revenge with just the helplessness of wanting somebody to do something. And she's such a, a, a powerhouse, such a, a strong character that she, she does two things. First of all, she brings us with her through her charisma, through her absolute uh, doggedness. Mm-hmm. But she also goes too far. We are in an interesting position where we have to decide how far along with her we should go as an audience. Exactly right. Uh, McDormand is a tribute to the writing, direction, and on McDormand's performance that she is captivating and you're drawn to her, but she's also very clearly an asshole. Mm-hmm. She is not have sympathy for a great number of people. She is has a hair trigger, and she is almost as willing to just do the horrifically violent act as some of the cops from <laughs> War on Everyone. Right. The, the unanswered question really is: We somewhat understand the, her behavior because. Her daughter was killed, but then the question did come to mind, well, what was she like before that? Right. <laughs> How much of a handful was she uh, Was she back then? Well, because do- she gives no quarter to anybody for any reason. That's right. Well, you see what her surviving child mm-hmm. uh, and her ex-husband who pays visits on occasion and how they seem a little worn out by how she, how she behaves. As the kid gets dropped off by school by McDormand's character, you see a, a really good look of resigned embarrassment in his face. As, uh, this is, uh, is going to be happening again. 
So it's really amazing to be able to take a, a, a character this thoroughly unsympathetic on so many levels, while understandable for the lack of sympathy, and then still want to follow her on this trip and then ask ourselves how much of how much we're willing to sympathize with her ourselves. Right, and how much is due to her own force of nature. So then she's contrasted with uh, Sam Rockwell's character. Now, if, if her backstory makes one want to sympathize with her, Sam Rockwell's uh, does the opposite. That's right. He's uh, this abusive, racist cop who's known for beating, uh, beating African-Americans in town and really being an impediment to what uh, McDormand's character is trying to do, thinking he can strong-arm her, which is the exact wrong answer. <laughs> the, but There's a lot of really weird kind of <laughs> a dark take on the high noon formula and a little bit as various denizens of the town try in subtle and very unsubtle ways to tell uh, Francis McDormand's character to stop uh, making the police force look bad, and she is not having any of that. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where the the brilliance of the Woody Harrelson character comes in, because he has this fantastic moment uh, in in these letters he writes uh, after he he's killed himself. Again, suicide comes back uh, in, into the picture. Um, where 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 he he tells McDormand's character that he's bought another month worth of the billboards calling him out just to have the drama continue longer. And so that's this kind of move that's a little hostile, but also kind of indicates that he understands where she's coming from. And just like in Bruges, we're dealing with emotions distilled which is what what mm. what McDonough does at his best and, and and if in Bruges distills guilt uh three billboards distills anger and ah. the results of anger that's really nicely put where the sources of the anger come from and how poisonous it is to hold on to that anger and ju- but yet the anger also provides a motivation. Right. So it, dr- it, it drives people, it animates people, but it also, it also wrecks people and twists and twists them. There's a really spectacular irony, one of many that this film traffics on, in that Francis McDormand's actions cause a person to be maimed in exactly... A, the same way that her daughter had been maimed earlier. And the film is just so spectacular about giving you not just emotional whiplash, but it's the equivalent of like literally putting you on an emotional kaleidoscope that's then put on a roller coaster because you are pulled in in so many directions, you're constantly on edge. There is a there's an interrogation scene for ex- early in the movie, mm-hmm. which is magnificent on that score. Because Woody Harrelson is uh, interrogating Francis McDormand and then saying, well, look, here's all these other ways that we'll just, we'll just make your life a living hell. 
and it's just uh, uh, and he's laughing and he's getting a chuckle out of this corruption and then McDormand is stewing in her own juices but then at that moment he just coughs up some blood and McDormand's face instantly changes and it becomes this moment of tremendous sympathy right out of out of what was a out of what was a, just a dark comedy and there's a spectacular unbroken shot halfway through which engages in so many different ironies and comic comic moments and brutal moments at once where where Rockwell's character sees that like Woody Harrelson's character is in bad shape. He feels that the person across the street who's helped these billboards come into effect is the main reason responsible for Woody Harrelson's character, who he considers a mentor. Mm-hmm. And in an, this great unbroken shot, he done to this really sad, melancholy song. He walks up the stairs, punches uh, this guy's secretary in the face, throws off this guy off the roof, not opening the window <laughs> before it happens, and then walks off at, back to the police station as an African-American guy looks on, says, what the hell are you looking at? And storms off. And the uh, African-American guy looks confused as he adjusts his coat. As you can see, he's the badge who's going to be the replacement sheriff in a move that's so completely deadpan and static that Wes Anderson would have envied. Yeah, it's really done well. And it, it fosters the beginning uh, of an arc for the Sam Rockwell character, who is kind of the character we had most pegged. Yes. And there's there's really, there's been this uh, controversy surrounding the film uh, based on, on this arc, um, because although uh, Rockwell's character does not become sympathetic, he does become more three-dimensional. We do understand a little bit about his home life, how he's dominated by his mother. Yes. Um, and then when he is burned in the fire in the police station, he has lost everything. He's lost his job. He's lost any uh, self-respect, and 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 he he's lost his his, his even his face. So he begins to actually seek common ground with McDormand's character, which is an unexpected move. Now, it doesn't, as I think some people have misinterpreted the film, alleviate his his own terrible deeds. It doesn't make us like the character. I don't think we ever do. But it does offer a way into this very uh, interesting ending where he thinks he's found the man who, who raped and, and killed uh, her daughter, and they find out they're wrong. It was not the man. But the way he was talking, the way he was bragging, he must have done something similar to somebody. And in another one of these McDonough patented endings of uncertainty, they team up to kill the man, except then they, they start having doubts. Is this the right thing to do? Should we do it? Mm-hmm. And, and we leave with the, the question of, well, well, we'll decide later. If you look at that through kind of the lens of... 
how all these characters have dealt with with anger throughout, it's really a powerful ending. You don't know the half of it, as far as I'm concerned, because the ending line is the greatest line since Nobody's Perfect (laughs) from Some Like It Hot. Okay. And for a very similar reason. I want to backtrack just a little bit because I differ with you a little bit with regards to Rockwell. I actually have some sympathy for him. And part of the reason I have some sympathy for him is, to be fair or unfair to me, I'm a huge Rockwell super fan. I've, okay. I've loved the guy ever since Bo- A Box of Moonlight, and and I adore so many of so much of his other work. Part of Rockwell's vibe is he gives off this kind of Peter Panish type innocence to him. But part of it also is that McDonough makes very, very clear that his horrible attitudes don't come across from him actually hating this group or that group. But it comes from ignorance and the fact that he's basically a little kid. He's constantly shown, like, reading comic books. Uh, He gets one-upped by pretty much any single person he comes in in conversation with. Mm -hmm. And in a wonderful detail, one of many that when you look at the movie, you can see on his desk at the police station, he has an open jar of half-eaten peanut butter, which you know his character eats with his finger. (laughs) (laughs) So I always felt that this was just an unformed part of, of his character. Just... Something that he's doing out of stupidity rather than actual malice. Hmm. And even if it, even if it was amount of misplaced anger that was unfair and treated people really horribly, it's so fascinating when he gets burned because I think you're very right in a religious kind of way. He is um, he has cleansed through fire, but it's also the moment where he decides to make a sacrifice for something at his own expense. And he turns from a person who is always thinking of just the interest of him and his police station buddies and his family to some to somebody who realizing that there's a, a purpose that's greater than him and himself and his immediate comfort, even at the cost to himself. And that's I think what really what I wins him over a lot to me is that from then on he his actions are determined by what can I do at my own cost to make life better for Francis Mc, for Francis McDormand's character. See, I think you see these films much more in the spirit that McDonough would want want us to than I do. Could be because I find myself having a more difficult time being as forgiving towards some of the more. Uh, odious characters that McDonough presents to us. Mm -hmm. And since forgiveness is his theme, that's kind of the spirit of the thing. I am a little more old Testament about it. (laughs) As opposed to the kind of the, the Catholic vibe that, that is going on throughout these, these films. So I, I do see that kind of childishness in Rockwell and reasons for, uh, why he has been like he's been, but they don't make me sympathetic towards the character. They do help me understand the character 
a little bit more. But uh, just like Colin Farrell in in Bruges, I end the movie not really with him, but uh, appreciating that this person has gone on a journey, interested in where the journey will take him, but still not quite over the sins of the past. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And just tying things in a little bit more to in a, a bit of a classic Hollywood vein, what is the point where he decides to p- uh, save the documents of the case? It's when he gets that letter mm-hmm. from uh, from Woody Harrelson, which is a very, I mean, that's a very, very neat trick that I think puts a very, that puts a really cool spin on the story. Because like Joe Gillis from Sunset Boulevard, he's a guy who is dictating the events of the story after he's dead. Right. It's really fun on a number of levels because just his attitude of like, for example, continuing the drama with Francis McDormand's character. But then also how he almost works as a kind of conscience to the movie. Very much so. He he is a presence from beyond the grave mm-hmm. that continues continues to affect. He is he is the character that sees the most clearly in yes. this film. Mm-hmm. Even upon his own plight, no matter how angry McDormand gets, he does not respond. And in what you would expect, the average small-town sheriff mm-hmm. who gets some righteous opposition would expect to behave. And his interactions with his wife is a very touching... Yes. Is a very mm-hmm. t- uh, touching sequence. Which I think is kind of the crux of what McDonough's trying to do. Is saying, well, we have, this, we have this moment, and this is a better memory that you can have of me than what would happen if, if he took a different course of action, let's say. Right, right. Right? right? And, but also think of those letters in the context of his, what McDonald was trying to do with Seven Psychopaths. Woody Harrelson gets to do what Martin doesn't get to do in Seven Psychopaths so much. He gets to, by writing, he gets to get the ending that he wants. Hmm, interesting. You know, so it does... So the idea of, like, the author... Combines with a spiritual dimension, I think, in a really, really fascinating way. It also goes to a nice societal undercurrent, too, because it's this not handled, I believe, in such a blunt force way. But I think it's really interesting that as the movie goes on, more and more characters who are not um, uptight white guys enter the picture. And eventually, McDormand gets a cotillery of allies from kind of all parts of the spectrum. Mm Mm-hmm. From her uh, fellow co-worker at, her, at the gift shop uh, to the guy who actually put up the signs in the first place. And most notably in terms of people helping her is Peter Dinklage, who is, yeah. does absolutely wonderfully. Maybe the second best line of the movie, I didn't have to hold the ladder for you. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, the fact that he, that he helps her in that way for her to be higher is just this extra kind of irony to the whole proceedings. To the one extent that the film has a failing, it's that it is such a bounty of all these different ironies, all these different emotions, all these different feelings and expressions and directions. And some of them just don't quite work. 
That's why I can't. I don't. I can't quite say this movie achieves complete pure greatness because it does this these whiplash things too much. It leaves me leaves me dizzy. Mm-hmm. My my favorite example is when when Woody Harrelson is trying to be from beyond the grave, lift up Rockwell's character, and he says, and he says, "You have the makings to be a great police officer." This is kind of words that Rockwell's character has clearly been wanting to hear all his life in some way. To have to have a kind of father figure mm-hmm. to say these things about him. And it's really, really touching. But the fact of him being a good cop is belied by the fact that there's a raging fire happening 10 feet behind him as he's reading these things. <laughs> and he's not quite aware of it. <laughs> right. But that's a guy like that scene, though, because that that just shows the the hopelessness of, of that character. I mean, Woody Harrelson can try, but there's only so much you can do with that guy. I guess I was giving I guess I was giving Woody Harrelson's uh, post uh, mortem uh, uh, voice. A little more omni- omniscience than um, uh, than it really should be. It really uh, should you be can't credit. fix stupid. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can't make stupid smart, maybe. But I believe there is a way of fixing in the way because Rockwell's character and McDormand's character do fix themselves in a way. McDormand's in her thirst for revenge, and mm-hmm. Rockwell. I mean, what or, I like- or, or do they? Exactly. Because the end again, the ambiguous ending <laughs> lets this go either way. That's right. Do the, do they hold on to that anger or do they let it go? Well, I think that's what makes that ending just glorious and what makes that ending line so great. In the same way that nobody's perfect is such a great line. Mm-hmm. It's not that you have to care in Some Like It Hot or be so sure that a relationship between Jack Lemon and Joey Brown is going to work <laughs> out for whatever that means. It's because that's what's cool about Some Like It Hot is nobody's perfect. And you you should have a measure of acceptance for people for, for who they are, no matter how weird or odd it may appear at first. What I think McDonough does in that last line, because and that whole last series of lines, is just great. Because it is about that, and he he does this from two different directions. They intercurl in each other in this just really great combination at the end. McDormand finally steals herself to tell Rockwell, you know, it was me that set the fire. This took that took a significant amount about her to finally admit this to him. Mm-hmm. And his reply is, "Hey, who else would be crazy enough to <laughs> to do that?" <laughs> And I believe that's the first time in the movie that you see a complete, unapologetic, unreserved smile mm-hmm. come from McDormand. And to which they then have the conversation of, do you really think we're going to kill him? We'll find out on the way. And honestly, that sums up a key facet of, I think, what, what McDonough wants to give us. That's kind of what we're all going to kind of do. We can go in our anger. We can look for redemption. But we're going to find out on the way. And this is only Martin McDonough's third film. So I am excited to find out what he's got for us next. Mm-hmm. I'm excited to see his brother turn things around and do and work more in the spirit of his earlier films. That's right. And you might be in luck on that because mm-hmm. one of the films that uh, that he's trying to do is another collaboration with Brendan Gleeson. Um, this time about about a person who has a uh, physical handicap hmm. who is uh, trying to overcome that to help solve a crime in his town. 
and I think they have said that it's trying to be an attempt to look at the town and look at the person trying to deal with his opposition outside and inside in a way similar to what's happening in cavalry. Wow. Well, if there's one thing I think we've learned from uh, these directors is use Brendan Gleeson whenever possible. If you can um, get him, sign him on the dotted line because <laughs> he has he has done magnificently. Well, now we um, uh, hope that you guys enjoy our look at this director and this other director. <laughs> if you have uh, favorite moments or points that you would like to make upon either Martin or, or John Michael McDonough or upon our commentary of these two notable directors, uh, you can feel free to give us an email about that at Directors Club Podcast at gmail.com. The Directors Club can be found in many places, such as on iTunes under Directors Club Podcast, Facebook, Directors Club Podcast. We are now on Spotify under Directors Club Podcast, and on Twitter at DC Podcast. And our episodes can all be found online at the website of Directors Club Podcast.com. Thanks for listening, guys, and we hope to catch you next time on another episode of the Directors Club. If it's a director club, we will talk about one Wachowski. (laughs) (laughs) Cheers. Cheers. Put your hands up. No. What? I said no. Why not? I don't want to. But I've got a gun. I don't care. Doesn't make any sense. Too bad.